Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. And I'm Chris Benderev. And this is Embedded. Okay, so it's January 2008. Barack Obama is running for president. And he meets the editorial board of the San Francisco Chronicle. It's pretty amazing to go back in time and hear Professorial Obama. Third point, and this will be, uh, I have actually four. Talking about how he can bring people together, repair America's reputation overseas. And then he gets asked why he introduced a bill that would encourage more coal production, when he also believes that the U.S. should reduce greenhouse gases. I think clean air is critical and global warming is critical. But uh, this notion of no coal, I think, is an illusion. So he's not threatening to ban coal or anything. But then he talks about this plan where electricity plants that burn coal would have to pay fines if they don't reduce certain emissions. So if somebody wants to build a coal-powered plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them because they're going to be charged a huge sum for all that uh, greenhouse gas that's being emitted. So yeah, the future is not going to be easy for coal-fired power plants. But Obama's like, we can't just do away with coal altogether. This San Francisco Chronicle interview, honestly, it does not get much attention. Until about 10 months later in early November, when a right-wing news website called Newsbusters finds the interview and really focuses on this idea of bankrupting coal plants. Imagine the website writes, if John McCain had whispered somewhere that he was willing to bankrupt a major industry. It goes on, this audio interview has been hidden from the public until now. But this interview was not hidden. The San Francisco Chronicle put it up on their website the day after it happened. Still, the Drudge Report picks up the story, then Sarah Palin picks it up. She's running for vice president with John McCain. She's out campaigning, and she takes this bankruptcy line and runs with it. And he said that... Sure, if the industry wants to build new coal-fired power plants, then they can go ahead and try, he says, but they can do it only in a way that will bankrupt the coal industry, and he's comfortable letting that happen. And you've got to listen to the tape. Two days after Palin says this, Obama wins the election. The headlines are all about breaking racial barriers, But some people do not forget the coal stuff. And this is when the phrase, war on coal, starts to pop up. And it keeps popping up. President Obama's war on coal will have a... The war on coal, I believe, is real. Declaring a war on coal. We will stop the Obama war on coal. I mean, the President of the United States has declared a war on coal and a war on jobs, and essentially a war on West Virginia. But was there a war on coal? Kind of. Just wasn't Obama who started it. It was actually a few things. First, the Sierra Club, starting back during the George W. Bush administration. In cities and towns around the country, activists and lawyers went before local boards and councils and blocked permits for coal-fired power plants, arguing the air quality around these plants was bad for people's health. Over 10 years, that network of activists stopped 194 new coal plants from being built in the United States. Marion Hitt is one of those activists from coal country who now heads the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. 194 plants was about a third of the plants in the U.S. And the second thing is this. Natural gas. Fracking allows access to huge reserves of natural gas. And it becomes way cheaper to make electricity with natural gas than with coal. So by 2012, the coal market tanks. 
coal prices go way down, companies go bankrupt, 20,000 people eventually lose their jobs. And then the third thing, late in the Obama administration in 2015, the EPA passes a rule that limits emissions from coal-fired power plants. And more of these plants close or switch to natural gas. So yeah, after all these things, by 2016, the presidential campaign, the coal industry is at its lowest point in decades. A lot of people are blaming Obama and the Democrats and the so-called war on coal. And then this happens. Uh, look. At a CNN town hall in Ohio, Hillary Clinton gets asked, what do you have to offer to poor white voters? And her answer, it comes to be known as one of the biggest mistakes of her campaign. She later writes an entire chapter about it in her book about the election. So, for example, I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country. Because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Right, Tim? She's talking to Congressman Tim Ryan, who's a Democrat from Ohio. And she's just said, we're going to put coal miners out of business. But then she goes on to talk about how she actually wants to help people in coal country. And we're going to make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. Those people labored in those mines for generations, losing their health, often losing their lives, to turn on our lights and power our factories. Now we've got to move away from coal. But I don't want to move away from the people who did the best they could to produce the energy that we relied on. So she's saying all this, but... What's the only thing that people hear? We're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. A few months later, Donald Trump comes to coal country. Thank you very much. And gets a big endorsement from the industry in West Virginia. See, I come here, I get an award. It's probably a hard hat. So let's see if it's a hard hat. It's a hard hat. Y'all put it on, right? He pretends he's shoveling. The crowd loves it. And for those miners, get ready, because you're going to be working your asses off, all right? Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Donald Trump suddenly becomes the guy who's going to end this war on coal. Around coal country, you start seeing signs that say, Trump digs coal. But... Do the miners end up working their asses off? Like, can Trump keep his promise? Those are the questions we're going to ask over our next few episodes. Because the people in coal country were important in the election. And they're going to be important in the next elections. Like it or not, whether Republicans or Democrats can connect to them matters to who ends up running this country.
We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. We are six months away from the midterms, and I am already asking for predictions. Well, I was wrong about Trump. I thought he'd lose by about three and a half million votes. He and, uh, did. Uh, <laughs> oh, this guy. <laughs> Sam Sanders here, a Republican strategist on a possible blue wave. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Okay, we are back. And yes, we are about to spend a bunch of time in coal country. And by coal country, I mean the coal counties of central Appalachia. And we're going to talk about Trump and the so-called war on coal. Before we do that, though, I feel like I need to talk about how this region has a long history of outsiders coming in and getting it wrong. I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. There's even a book that's out right now called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. It's by this historian named Elizabeth Catt. And she says for people like Chris and me to go to coal country as a way to explain Donald Trump isn't totally fair to the people of coal country. Like the stereotype that everyone in central Appalachia is an angry white Trump supporter is wrong. This region has a long history of progressive politics, of miners and their families during the so-called mine wars taking up arms against coal companies who are trying to keep them from unionizing, of women and immigrants and African Americans working as miners themselves and organizing strikes. She says getting Appalachia wrong goes way back. One really bad time was the 60s. That's when people from other parts of the country came and portrayed people in coal country in this really one-dimensional way. As poor people with no education, no money, no agency, no power. In 1962, this local lawyer writes a book called Night Comes to the Cumberlands, a biography of a depressed area. This is him in a BBC documentary. This coal train is symbolic of much of the dilemma of Appalachia. Millions, hundreds of millions... Even billions of dollars worth of coal have gone out of these valleys, Appalachia's most valuable single resource. The book was the foundation for a different war, the War on Poverty. That was a huge federal program that under Lyndon Johnson pumped billions of dollars into Appalachia. Donations of clothes and shoes and even cabbages came to the region. Volunteers came to pick up trash and register people to vote. And reporters came to take what came to be known as the Poverty Tour. Only recently has America woken up to the shock that the American dream had become a nightmare for many people. In 1967, a Canadian filmmaker asks a coal miner if he can take his picture. The miner's sitting on the porch of his rundown wooden shack, rocking a baby. The miner says yes. Then the owner of the property comes. It all happened awfully fast. A man drives up, opens the door of a car takes a few steps, screams at us, shoots a gun off. And kills the cameraman. That was his colleague who was there. Well, this is from a film about the killing called Stranger with a Camera. And a lot of people end up taking the killer's side. He's sentenced to 10 years, but ends up getting out on parole after one year 
Here's how one man talks to reporters around the same time. You don't need to come in here to impress us with boots and fuzzy faces. No, my friend. Wrong place, boy. You're, You're in the trouble. wrong damn place, believe you me. You better believe you, you come to us like uh, human beings, and we'll treat you like a human being. You come to us like a damn now. bunch of beatniks, and we'll treat you like beatniks. Yeah. Now, my friend, you better believe it. You're treading on damn dangerous ground. It was the 60s, and you could already see some of the divisions you see now. People in coal country, Appalachia, didn't want outsiders coming in and trying to tell them how to live a better life. They were organizing on their own just fine. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? One of the best documentaries ever is about all of this. It's called Harlan County, USA. It came out in 1976. And it follows the coal miners and the women of the county during this intense strike in eastern Kentucky. I'm not after a man. I'm after a contract. I'm raising two boys. In the end, the miners got that contract, which included higher pay and the right to strike. When the coal economy was strong, the miners had power. Over time, though, coal mining got more mechanized. The coal market went through big slumps. The United Mine Workers of America lost members. And coal miners lost their main source of collective power. Then the coal companies worked hard to change the narrative. They're not the enemy. They're the good guys. Support West Virginia coal miners. Coal keeps the lights on. Become a friend of coal today. They call it Friends of Coal. It's a membership organization that was established by the coal companies and that has lobbying groups in Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky to pass pro-industry laws. Friendsofcoal.org. And at some point, the answer to which side are you on changed. Instead of the people versus the coal companies, it was the coal companies saying to the people, we're with you, and with you we stand against the environmentalists and the government, those outsiders who are trying to come in and take away your jobs. This is also how we get the idea of the war on coal. And it's how we get more mistrust of outsiders. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gelmar CLR. Whatever you call your home, Gelmar knows you take great pride in keeping it clean. That's where CLR comes in. CLR dissolves calcium, lime, and rust all around the house using natural ingredients, not harsh chemicals. It even carries the EPA's Safer Choice seal. Keep your little piece of the planet looking its best with CLR, making the world a little cleaner. Hi, I'm Daniel Alarcón, host of NPR's Spanish-language podcast, Radio Ambulante. On this week's episode... La fianza era $12,000. What if you were detained and couldn't make bail? ¿De dónde voy a sacar esa cantidad? What if someone offered you a way out if you wore an ankle monitor? Find Radio Ambulante on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back again. And by this point, we know that reporting on this region is fraught. We actually started working on these stories right before the election, when a lot of people still thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. I kept reading about what one writer called downwardly mobile white Americans. 
these voters who were connecting with Trump but not connecting with Clinton. But a lot of the coverage of people in coal country has been about pointing fingers. Like, why do you want this industry to come back when all the experts say it's never going to come back? What we wanted to know is, what's it like to think that there's a war going on against you? A war on coal. How does that feel? So it is two days before the election, November 6th, 2016. And we go to this potluck and cake raffle that the local Republican Party is having at a school in one of those coal counties in central Appalachia. The reason we're having a hard time putting dinner on the table in southwest Virginia is because of the EPA and other people up in Washington, D.C. Buchanan County, Virginia, which is a place we end up spending a lot of time. And remember, people really think Hillary Clinton is going to win the election. And if that happens, people here think their lives are basically going to be ruined. Like, they are really worried. We have no jobs here. Our children, we've packed school lunches for them to take home to feed them. We don't need her. What do you mean? I mean, one It's for the nobody goes hungry. We have to feed them. And there's so many kids in our community that has to be fed on the weekends for that because there's no jobs in our community. So where do you do that? At our schools. The and you pack lunches on Fridays for them to take home yes, for the weekend? Cans of soup, cans of soup, boxes of cereal, things like that. Our cooks do that. Yes. My name's Sue Bailey. There are a few cold jobs left around here. Sue's husband has one of them. How has it affected your life? Like, how has the changing economy here affected your life? Has it affected my life? My husband works right now, six days, five and six days a week. He leaves my home at 3.30. He gets home at 5 o'clock. He's working for less money right now than he was 20 years ago. So, you know, look at us. Our insurance is higher. Our deductibles are higher. He's working for less money. We can't afford anything. I mean, you live day to day, payday to payday. Retirement? His retirement has been cut. They won't put anything in his retirement, just what he can deposit himself. It used to be benefits, right? It used to be benefits. He has nothing now, nothing. They took everything, and that's Obama. That not the companies. Not the companies. It's the rules that Obama set up against the coal and our work. We have a little... <laughs> Hi. Hello. So my name is Malachi. <laughs> Malachi's mom is Jenny Hall, and her husband's Justin Hall. He's actually in the coal mining industry. Yeah, for about eight years, and I'm a nurse. <laughs> if we don't have coal, we'll have to move. I mean, we won't be in this area. There's nothing left here, you know. That's one of the things that this whole county and southwest Virginia has thrived on coal. Without coal, we, we ain't got anything, really. It's a family generation. You know, his uncles was, you know, in coal mines and owned coal mines, and his dad drove a coal truck. So, you know, it's very <laughs> in their blood. That's all they know. <laughs> Jenny says now they're thinking about moving to Indiana, where her niece is. We went visiting up there this summer in case, okay, what we need a backup plan if Hillary does, you know, get president. Yeah, we don't want to move, but you've got a backup plan. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to if, you know, probably, don't you think? Hillary gets elected, which she probably is more than likely. I mean, I hope not, but. So you think if Hillary wins, you have to move, basically? That's a good possibility. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, we might make it for a few years, but eventually, I mean, if you were going to have anything in life besides a minimum wage job, yeah, probably. 
in this town, you know, you can't, we want more to give to our kids. Two days later, Donald Trump wins the election. And the people in the coal counties of central Appalachia vote overwhelmingly for Trump. But let me say right here, even though some of these voters were from states that went for Trump, they alone did not turn the election in favor of Trump. White people without a college education, namely in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, did that. Pennsylvania is a coal state, but again, the coal vote wasn't the crucial thing. Now, coal and jobs were the major reasons people told us they voted the way they did. And some people did talk to us about other reasons, like abortion and race, or what researchers call racial resentment. This feeling some white people have that people of color are taking what they think is theirs. A resentment that goes back a long way, like to that other war, the war on poverty, and some white people saw government spending as favoring people of color. And now there's a lot of research out there asking whether people who voted for Trump actually voted the way they did because of economic hardship or perceived economic hardship or because of this racial resentment. Some studies suggest it's about race. And we are going to talk about race in these episodes. But look, I know that knowing this is maybe how some people voted also makes this project fraught, right? Like, not only are the people of Appalachia skeptical of people like me coming and trying to tell their stories, the other thing I worry about is that some people who are listening outside of Appalachia might be like, why do I need to hear the stories of people who might have voted this way? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow a handful of people in coal country over the first year and change of the Trump administration and just see how their lives go. See if this promise to bring back coal comes true. We'll meet some young guys who are deciding whether to bank on a thing that most people say has no future. Should they stay and work in coal or should they go? We'll watch as one man decides whether or not to let his company his livelihood and the livelihood of a dozen or so other people totally fold. We'll go to a place called the Cloud Factory. We'll go down in the hole. We'll hear some really surprising history about African Americans and coal. And we'll watch as some people do start working their asses off. Like Trump said. Just not for the reason you might think. These episodes were reported and written by Chris Benderev and me. They were produced by Chris, Noor Wazwaz, and Lisa Pollock. They were edited by Lisa and mixed by Chris. We also had editing help from Karen Grigsby-Bates, Neil Carruth, Tom Dreisbach, Neva Grant, Rebecca Hersher, Jennifer Ludden, and Mark Memmott. Fact-checking by Greta Pittenger. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. Other original music is by Ramtin Arablui. 
Huge thanks to Ruth Sherlock, Joe Street, Benny Becker, Taylor Kukendall, Ralph Dunlop, Rima Keen, Susan Stancil, Elizabeth Cat, Chris Dillo, Tom McLaughlin, Kate Larkin, and Roger May. Roger runs this project called Looking at Appalachia. It's a crowdsourced image archive that attempts to establish a visual counterpoint to the War on Poverty era. You can see his photographs, too, at rogermayphotography.com. The film clips you heard in this episode were from The Crusader by the BBC, Harlan County, USA by Barbara Koppel, Stranger with a Camera by Elizabeth Barrett of Apple Shop and Appalachia, Rich Land, Poor People by Jack Willis. We are very grateful to these filmmakers for permission to use these clips. You really should see all of these films. Embedded is executive produced by Anya Grundman, Chris Turpin, and me. We are back next week with more Cole stories. Subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. I'm Kelly McEvers. That's it. Thanks. <laughs>